What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Seth Podcast. My guest today is songwriter Holly Knight. She has a new book entitled I Am the Warrior. My crazy life writing the hits and rocking the MTV 80s. So, Holly, why'd you write the book? Why did I write the book? Um, <laughs> I guess I wrote it for a number of reasons. Uh, I tried to actually write it a few years ago, and I took it to a uh, person that represents writers, and she came back and she said, well, you know, um, it's really well written. I really like it, but... Uh, you're not a household name, and I probably won't be able to get you a deal. So I went, oh, and I put it aside for about a year and a half. And then people kept bugging me and going, why aren't you, you know, I'd be in the kitchen at some party or something, and they'd go, you have to write a book. You have so many stories, and they're so varied. There's so so many different artists. Um, so I thought, you know what? Uh, fuck it. I'm doing it. And so I put together a book proposal. I learned how to do it the proper way. You know, I got an agent and uh, I got a deal. And that's how it started, really. And then, the you know, the pan- pandemic was going on. So I was home all the time anyway. And I thought, you know, I, I really need a break from songwriting, which happens to me um, during different, you so know, periodically I just have to stop writing and I need something else to put my creative juice into. So... I really enjoyed it, actually. I had a lot of fun writing this book. Okay, what's the reaction been from some of the people you mentioned? You're very honest. You say who you have sex with. Some people you're not so charitable to. Have you gotten any feedback? Um, I, you mean the people in the book? Right. Yeah, I've, I, got, I got feedback from Kathy Valentine and Cassandra Peterson, 
my two buddies, and they loved it. I mean, Cassandra was so sweet, and she said, I had no idea you loved me so much, which was pretty funny. Um, but uh, And Kathy as well, and, and, and they both said that they were really impressed with the fact that it was actually really well written. It wasn't just like slocked down there, like here, this happened and this happened. I tried to be, you know, tried to be sort of artistic. Um, And um, as far as the guys, let's see, I had, everybody has been just freaking out over it and telling me they love it. But the people that are in it, I haven't gone out of my way to tell uh, too many of them that they're in the book. Um, And a lot of them I sent the book to, like I sent it to Jean, Gene Simmons, and I don't know if he reads books, but he put a really nice blurb on it, which was fantastic. And what was great about it was his blurb totally mirrored the story that I wrote about in the book, which kind of was validating, you know. Um, I sent a copy to Paul Stanley. I doubt he'll read it. Um, Stephen, I didn't send it to Stephen Tyler. He's got a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, what about I, Rod I'm Stewart? Sh- you know, you take a few swings at him, not vicious, <laughs> but he comes over to write a song and you never write right. the song. Well, that's his fault. You know, he was too busy being mischievous and horsing around. And it was really important to me to write something good. I mean, look, these people call me to write something that, you know, uh, they've run out of either juice or steam or they've been doing it too long or they want fresh blood. And so I can't just write an ordinary track, you know, I have to write something that's really, really good. And it was just frustrating. I mean, I talk about it in the book and I don't think I put him down at all. I just sort of told the facts and, and said that I was, you know, all the, all the different things that happened. Um, and honestly, when I saw him, I mean, that happened, what, 20 years ago, no more, like, 35 years ago when I wrote Love Touch. Um, but he had made a remark, uh, you know, as you know, he made a remark in the book about uh, how it was, uh, no, sorry, not in the book. He made a remark on an anthology record that he did. And he said that this song, Love Touch, was uh, one of the silliest songs or embarrassing songs he'd ever recorded, which was a shocker because that's not how it went down at all. He absolutely loved it. And he got me to come in and sing it. And I played all the instruments on it. And he sent me flowers afterwards telling me how he loved it. So it was like a complete about face. And I think that had a lot to do with, you know, the man's club and everything that the rest of his band and people whispering in his ear. But the funny thing is I saw him at the Tina Turner uh, premiere in London and the West End. And he was like my best friend. I don't even, I've seen him before that. He doesn't remember any of that. He turned once to someone and it was his family. I ran into him in Central Park in New York um, at a restaurant and he turned to his family and said, Holly and I wrote this hit song, this great song together. And I'm thinking, well, wow, no, you didn't write it with me, but now you think it's a hit song again. So, you know, what the fuck? It's, you know. Well, We're all you know, getting older. What can I say? If you get paid anyway on Love Touch, does it bug you when he says the song is silly or doesn't like it? Yeah, I think uh, it does bug me because, you know, I'm still, I still have feelings. And um, if it were true, I would even say, yeah, that's not one of the best songs I've written. I mean, look, I've written a lot of songs with, or, you know, for Kiss. And I wouldn't go walking down Sunset and saying, this is the best song I've ever written. I mean, Water Seeks Its Own Level. And they're great Kiss songs, but they're not the level of some of the songs I write. 
uh, where I put a lot of effort into lyrics and things like that. And that's why I said in, in the book, I said, you know, I'm sorry, but the lyrics I felt to Love Touch were fucking poetry. And I said it because I really feel that, you know. There's some really, a lot of thought went into that tune. I think he missed the whole point of it. I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I'm not upset about it now. I got it out in the book. It's amazing how cathartic this book has been because there were a lot of things that I was kind of walking around, you know, chewing on it like a bone. And it just, this somehow helped me to let it go. So you mentioned earlier the boys club, men's influence. What's it like being a woman or has been being a woman in a guy's world? It's been interesting. Um, I was always a tomboy growing up. And also, I kind of grew up with a bit of a chip on my shoulder uh, based on my upbringing. And uh, I also took music very, very seriously. I mean, I started playing piano when I was four. And I was playing Mozart sonatas in, um, you know, Mendelssohn at a ridiculously young age. So I was very confident. I mean, look, there's a lot of things I'm not confident about or weren't, I wasn't confident about, but music was definitely not one of them. So when I walked into those rooms, I just felt like, let's get to work. I have every right, I have as much right to be here as you do. And the minute we would start working or I would start playing something, they would shut up, you know? They would actually, you could actually see the change. It was really quite amazing to watch. And then, you know, my name started getting around, and I think people just accepted me. There was a lot of respect. It was kind of unbelievable in a way that they just sort of opened their doors and, and treated me like an equal, to be honest, except for the few times, and one of them was the Rod Stewart story. That's probably the, the probably the, I don't want to say dark, but it's probably the most revealing one as far as, you know, being around guys, because, I mean, to walk into the room, I had been asked to do a tour uh, by the management and by Rod. And it was a short tour. It was three weeks, and their keyboard player couldn't make it. And I thought, geez, this would be so much fun. And when I walked in, Rod wasn't there, and I went up to the guitarist. And, uh, yeah, I definitely I had something to say about him in the book, for sure. But, he, you know, he looked at me like, well, who, who are you? We didn't order any pizza. So. But let's go, you know, we've, we're living in the Me Too era, and not all men, but some men are very forward, and it can be tough being a woman. Did you have any of those experiences? No, not really. I had one I mentioned in the book when I was about 18, and I was, you know, going sneaking backstage to, like, Madison Square Garden uh, to sort of... I mean, we didn't call it networking then, but that's basically what I was doing. And I really described the backstage area as like another, like the other side of the looking glass, like just such a strange alternate reality. And um, there was a band one night, who, they were the opening act to uh, the, the, the bigger band. And this guy came up to me, I think he was the bass player or something, and he said, follow me and I followed him into a room and then he just turned around and grinned and said I really would like a blowjob and I just like I looked at him like I was I wasn't scared I was more like disgusted like ill and I ran out of there as fast as I could and after that I just you know uh I I mean this is not to take away from people that have been constantly, you know, these stories of women that have been abused and raped by men. I mean, that it's disgusting how that goes on. But that's not my story. 
my story was more like, don't fuck with me. You know, if you if you want the best of me, let's work together. Um, and then there were times, like I said in the book, there was plenty of ass grabbing, but that was on both sides, you know. Uh, if I wanted to be with someone, I, I was flirting back. So, you know, the Me Too mo- movement wasn't really sort of happening for me. Um, and I know there are there's so many women that that story is true. And for them, I think it's wonderful if they have the courage to speak up, you know. But I really, I'm, I'm one of those people, like, this book is not about, you know, who tried to rape me or how I went into rehab. I talked about that, too, you know. I did smoke pot, and I did do blow, but I wasn't addicted, and I stopped doing it 30 years ago. Um, and this is not a story about all the drugs that nearly killed me. I, I, so, in other words, not everybody that drinks alcohol is an alcoholic. You know what I mean? Sure. Okay. But you do delineate having sex with some of these people you're working with, and that is not in most people's books written by women. Do you think you're the same and they just don't write about it, or are you different? Well, I can't speak for anybody else's experiences, but I imagined, uh, well, I know some of them, okay? And I'm not going to name names, but yeah, of course. You know, you think of a, I mean, it's different. It's not like you pick up a guy, like, for instance, Kiss. They would pick up someone in the hallway of, like, you know, the place they were playing in, or they would probably, would boast about just meeting someone and asking them to give them, you know, head or something. Um, That was never the case with me. I mean, I was a little classier than that. These were people that I worked with. I mean, look, if you look at an actor he ends up sleeping with the actress that he's pl- doing the movie with. It just happens. You spend all the time with them. They're charismatic. You're attracted to each other and stuff happens. But I never went, I never picked up people and did one night stands. Even when I was in my bands like Spider and, and Device, um, I never picked up ever someone on the road. So that's a little bit of a difference, you know. But some of the guys that I worked with, I slept with. Yeah. And I'm still friends with them. Or some of them I dated and some I married. How many times have you been married? Three. And are you presently married? No. I've been married and divorced three times. So what did you learn? I learned that I have to value myself more and, and reach for the higher hanging fruit on the tree. And um, that I... Well, the second time I got married, I really wanted to have children and, and you know, my biological clock was ticking in and and I fell in love with someone and, you know, I was a great wife in my opinion. I I just ended up leaving them because I never, I, I wasn't very prudent with the choices I made, you know. So what I've learned is just to value myself and, and realize that if I'm going to enter into, into a series, well, I'll never get married again, that's for sure. But um, now I'm dedicating Love is a Battlefield when I play it live. I dedicate it to my ex-husbands, you know. <laughs> but um, Okay, as someone who's been married and divorced yeah. myself, uh, people How always say— How many times? Say, just once. I live with—I live—just once been married, okay? And people always say, oh, you know, it was equal. We agreed. It's never equal. Somebody wants it more than the other person— were you the person? I totally in, agree. And how was it with your three marriages? Um, I would say that, well, like I said, at the end of it, I had to kick all three of them out. 
Um, but I would say that, let me think, I have to think individually here for a second. Um, I think they needed me more than I needed them. Okay. They needed, me for, they needed me for different reasons than I needed them. What they needed me for was um, a free ride. You know, I was the breadwinner. And uh, we could do a whole podcast on that, but I think oh that's, a, that's a little different subject. But when one reads the book, if one is Hollywood fluent, shit doesn't just happen. So I'm reading the book and I say, well, you know, this woman had to be pretty aggressive to, in order to be in these situations. Would you agree with it? How would you characterize your own behavior? I would say more than aggressive, I would say uh, confident but and, and sort of uh, creative with how I went about getting their attention sometimes or, you know, um, and sometimes, yes, aggressive. Uh, you know, for instance, when I was working with Tina Turner, um, I really wanted her to cut a certain song. She's cut nine of my, but I wrote this one song and I said, you, I called up her manager. I said, you have to get her to cut this tune. I know she, this is the perfect tune for her. And I did that whole thing and she ended up cutting it. And it's funny because Roger did a, a BBC interview where he talked about it, you know. But um, are you talking about my work or my personal life? I'm or talking both? about your work. Yeah. I would say I was confident, and I think my work spoke for itself. I didn't have to do a lot of selling once my well, name well, got around. Yeah, well, I'm more talking about, you know, before you had a hit with Obsession and then, you know, with Pat Benatar thereafter, when you're scrapping, mm -hmm. even when you're a teenager in New York City, you know, everyone talks about getting backstage. It is not easy to get backstage. It is not well, easy to be tenacious. Okay. I was absolutely tenacious. I was relentless. Are you kidding? If if, if maybe we're talking about semantics here, um, if that's what you mean by aggressive, absolutely. I was very clever, and you know, I talked about it in the book. I would, I would uh, spend most of the time talking to the photographers because they always got invited to the best parties, and they were the nicest ones. They weren't as pretentious as you know the other uber trendy cool people backstage. They were more down to earth. And um, I mean, I never had a business card or anything, but I was always trying to weasel my way into some sort of conversation or, or you know, and, and it took a while. And like I said, they, we didn't have the word networking, but that's what I was doing. And one thing led to another, to another, to another. Um, but I think it was more confidence. I, and I also talk about in the book the fact that it was kind of crazy the way I know you're finding it hard to believe, Bob, but a lot of things fell in my lap, you know? Uh, I'm not, I wasn't in a band where we had a struggle for two, three years, and things just happen. And, and, and I really believe in a spiritual way that when the universe wants things for you, it gets out of your way. And not only that, it aids and abets the process. And these things just kept coming in. That's not to say I haven't, you know, I haven't had to eat shit and I haven't had to be turned down all the time. I mean, even now, you know, I've been in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, but sometimes um, it's just degrading the way people treat you. The songwriters get treated pretty much like shit. So tell me about this chip on your shoulder. Be a little deeper. What are you talking about? Well, when I was growing up uh, and my parents divorced, my mother was physically abusive. And 
you know, I, I, I didn't really get in. I didn't want to get into it too much, but I told one story just so it would sort of show how something inside of me that the fire in my belly was ignited, so to speak, where I got just tired of it and I learned to fight back. In the beginning, I didn't fight back. And when I learned to fight back, um, it's like anything. When you give someone power, it's you giving them the power. The minute you take it away, they, it's it's like, you know, that scene in The Wizard of Oz where the, the horrible, mean wizard, he put back the curtain, and you see he's just a little old man, and he's, yeah. So it's sort of like that. And so what came with that was a chip on the shoulder, you know, talking back to my mother, getting smacked some more, Um and I just sort of carried that on with me as I was sort of out there. Um, I mean, I talk about it in the book. I don't get into it too much, but I was out there for about four years just traveling. I lived everywhere. I lived in Seattle for a year. I lived in Boston for two years. Um, I was doing everything from food stamps to I'd work long enough to qualify for um, unemployment, and then I'd get the unemployment. And then when that would run out, you know, I would do all those things. And I had lots of you know, straight jobs. Those were, that was probably the last time I ever had a, like a a real job, like working for someone else was when I was in spider. And that lasted, I think about a week. And then we got a record deal. And that's why I talk about these things. They kind of fall inside into your lap. Seemingly, but what did your father say when you told him about the abuse? Well, that was also difficult because my father was in total denial and he wouldn't, he wouldn't validate anything I was saying. He wouldn't call her up and, and tell her to cut it out. And it took about 50 years. I went into a therapist's office with him and finally found out what was the, what that was all about, which I don't really need to, I wouldn't want to, as disrespect to him, get into it now. But, um, that also made me angry. Like, why aren't you protecting me? You know, he would always sort of like say, oh, she's like one of those European women like Gina Lola Bridget. She likes to pick up plates and throw them, you know, and I would say, no, that's why are you glamorizing that? So that that also added to the chip on my shoulder, you know, and, and also the fact that, um, you know, my book is dedicated to anyone who ever had a dream and was told no. And that was me because I was this sort of blossoming classical pianist. My mother really wanted to groom me for that. And she said, you're this, you're not this. So then there was this angst once I discovered rock music and the louder the better, you know, that's where the rebelliousness started to to grow and the chip on the shoulder and all that. And, um, you know, that's all part of, it, it, it. it's so funny how so many things in my life have led up to you know, the fact that I wrote The Warrior, that I write songs that are about fighting and, and, and all that. It's like none of it was premeditated. It just kind of unfolded that way. And, you know, a lot of times when I was writing the book, I would come to these sort of realizations. I never really analyzed it before until someone says, explain it to me. And then you have to put it into words, you know. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So you ultimately run away from home and go on this hijra for years. Tell us a little bit about that. I left home when I was 15, and um, it was right before my 16th birthday. I just, uh, you know, I didn't like the abuse that was going on at home. My father wasn't listening to me. Um, and then one day I went up to my school, which was music and art. That was, at the time, it was in a really rough neighborhood, which I don't even know if the neighborhood's so rough now, but it was 135th Street and Convent Avenue. And now the school is next door to Juilliard. You know, I so wish it had been that way when I went there. But again, that's my journey. So I remember one day I walked up to school and there was like police tape everywhere. And they were pulling a body out of this garbage can that was chopped up in pieces. They just pulled the head out. And I looked and I thought, this is crazy. I'm getting out of here. And I had met, I already had a boyfriend at that point who was 20. He was a drummer. And we had sort of been talking about doing the what ifs, like, what? If, and I'm thinking, what if I play house? I'm 15. What if I go out there and just grow up really fast and play house? And I was sort of entertaining the idea, but I never thought it would happen. And then one day, uh, I was working at Sam Ash. I got a job there, which, by the way, I loved. I loved working. I loved that feeling of making my own money. And to this day, that is so important to me, not to be dependent on someone else. Okay, a little bit... A little bit slower. So we're on 48th Street when there used to be Manny's and all these things. <laughs> Slow down. You, you know, yeah. and it was sort of an intense buying experience. You just walked in and said, you got to hire me? How'd you actually get the job? <laughs> I, it's like the things that fall into my lap. I walked in there and I, um, I remember the manager's name was Herb. And I said to him, I'm looking for a job. 
I'm still in school, so I can only work part-time. I'm a musician. Um, are you hiring? And uh, they, he, he just took my number, kind of looked at me there, like, whatever. Because um, everybody that worked there, they were all men. And I got a call um, at home that night and asking if I could come in the next day. So I guess they must have fired someone, like, unexpectedly. And, you know, I was in the right place at the right time, and he called me in. And I loved working there because it, it was sort of, and this happens a lot with musicians that get jobs at all these places like Guitar Center or whatever. It, at least you're around music and it puts you one step closer to being in the music business, even if it's a fantasy. But then also the fact that so many people come into these stores that are legendary. I mean, they have to buy equipment and I don't know how it is now, but in that day they wanted to come in and check out the equipment themselves. Now they, maybe they send someone, I don't know. But um, I did all the like really crappy little jobs that no one else wanted to deal with. Like um, if you wanted to sell like an amp head at new and it had some nicks on it, he would give me a Sharpie and I'd have to color it in and make it look new. Or he sent me in the back where all the cables were. I mean, to this day, when a roadie sees me take a guitar cable and wrap it up, they're, they're like, where'd you learn that? It's like, after doing hundreds in the back of over and over and over, just like, I just got, boom, it got really, I got good at it. But they were kind of crappy things. And then one day on my break, I was in the back and I was playing keyboards. And then I hear someone clapping and I turned around and it's her, the manager. And he said, where did you learn to play like that? And then I told him more about me. And then from that point on, he used to have me demonstrate keyboards to buyers. Like I couldn't actually make the sale because I wasn't legally old enough or I didn't have a so I don't remember what it was, social security or something, but he just sort of would call me out and have him just go play and, you know, and make it sound. And I try and make it look like it was easy. Like if you press this button, you, you get this sound and blah, blah, blah. And so it was, it was, it was cool. And a lot of, you know, my God, a lot of uh, really big artists came in and I would just sort of like poker face, just stare like, holy shit, it's Jimmy Page. Holy shit, it's Frank Zappa. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, it's one thing when you see, it's something I said in the book, of, um, you, you start to believe that you know people when you see them all the time on TV or in magazines and stuff. But then when they walk in you and you realize it's them and you think, I don't really know them at all, but I know that face and I know what they've done. And I, you know, I did that a lot in the book and I still do it. I'm a fangirl. I'm a fan. I'm a music fan, especially that era, you know, the 70s and 80s. There's really nothing like it right now. No. That's for sure. Okay, so tell yeah. me about actually leaving New York. You mean when I ran away the first yes. time? Or, yes. Because I ran away a few times. Um, okay, so I was 15, and I lied to my mother. I had found out, oh, right, I started to tell you about Sam Ash. I saw a brochure, and it was uh, a summer school program up in Boston called the Electro Boston School of Electronic Music. And they were teaching electronic music on synthesizers like ARP 2600s and the the Moog, not just the mini Moogs, they had the big Moogs, like with, you know, you had to be practically a phone operator to, to learn how to use those because you had to plug all these cables in and everything. Um, I was really fascinated with all that. I mean, I was like an Emerson, Lake and Palmer geek. And um, I sort of saw myself as a female version of him. You know, I wanted to perform I didn't know I wanted to be a songwriter. I just wanted to be a rock star, you know? And I didn't want to be a rock star because I cared about so much about being famous 
uh, I didn't even think about the money part. I just wanted to play the music that I wanted to be play to, to be playing, and I wanted to play to an audience. So that's really how it started. The songwriting thing sort of came after the fact. After I'd, I'm probably getting ahead of myself again, but. Um, so I left home pretending that I was going to come home on such and such a date, like it was Labor Week, and I'll see you. You know, I said I was just glad to be away from my mother, and I think she was probably glad to get rid of me too. So um, I told her I'd be back, and then about a week or so before I was supposed to be back, I'd been plotting this all summer. I mean, this was like the great escape to me, and um, we'd saved money. I, I went with with the boyfriend, Danny, the drummer. And um, somehow I felt safe. And the funny part is, like, it wasn't like I was going out on the road with a 20-year-old that was taking care of me. It was kind of the other way around. He was the child, and I was taking care of him, you know. Um, But at least I felt more protected, and I felt that was my first love. I fell in love with him, and I had this fantasy that we would form a band, and that never happened. And we just, uh, we went on these crazy adventures that, you know, when I originally wrote the book, I wrote about 100 pages more, and I wrote about some of these escapades we went on on the road, because that's even more, like, unbelievable, some of those stories. But I decided that this book had to have some sort of hook. So the hook for me was the MTV era, which was unlike any other to me. You know, that's when I had started really having a lot of hits and stuff. But um, so before that, yeah, so we traveled around and eventually I ended up back in New York. And you graduate from high school. I did. What I did was I <laughs> I went to Barnes & Noble and I got, and, and they were around back then, and I got the, uh, you know, like when you're studying for college or you're studying for certain exams, you have these practice books. So I got some practice books for the GED. And um, the thing that was amazing was I always had really, really good reading skills. Like when I was in fourth grade, I was reading on a ninth or 10th grade level. So that's always gotten me through life because I'm so self-taught on so many levels. And the fact that I like to read and then the internet came along and it's just like this explosion of like available knowledge right at your fingertips. Um, so anyway, I, I studied the, from the book and I took the test and got my diploma and I thought, well, that's funny. I've just spent three years out on the road and I got my diploma like everybody else my age. You know, I had to wait till I was 18 to, to qualify. And then I sent it to my dad because I know he was really ashamed. I was kind of ashamed, too, that I, I hadn't graduated. But I, I knew I was going to work it out, you know. And as it turned out, I scored really high and I could have gone to college, but I didn't have to because then my career Other things happened, happen, you know. So right. what, did, what did your mother ever say about your success when you had it? It took her a long time to, to actually come out and say, I'm proud of you. And she's probably said that to me maybe three or four times my entire life. So hence, that's another, another part of the chip on the shoulder, you know. Um, she's, she's passed away now, so. I, that's another thing that I thought now I can write the book because both my parents aren't around anymore. Because um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt, make it worse or hurt their feelings or anything. But um, I always sort of when I tell these stories, I place the the story more on me as opposed to them. You know what my interpretation of that is. But um, like for instance, I would give her, I would give her like a bunch of CDs and uh, to listen to and and, and enjoy. 
different ones, like like different bands. Like one would be Bon Jovi and one would be Aerosmith and one would be Kiss. And I knew she hated that kind of music. So she just gave them away. She kind of used it to make herself look like, look, look at my daughter, look what she did. But she didn't she didn't really listen to them herself. And 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 I wasn't surprised at that point, but it still bothered me. You know, it's funny when you have this relationship with your parents, no matter how fucked up they are, and maybe when they're even when they're fucked up. You want, you still care what they think. Even though they've taught and treated you badly or whatever, you still want more than anybody else's um, approval or you want them to say, I'm proud of you or whatever. It's very important um, because it's part of who you are. Okay. You ultimately join what becomes Spider. Tell us how you get into that band, which very interestingly includes Anton Fig, of course, was the drummer for David Letterman forever. Yeah, I um, I was friends with someone who, you know, he was just, uh, he was great at, 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 at hooking people up, and he invited me to go see a band one night, and I went, and the band had a couple of members that were just filling in because they wanted to do their own band. And I met them, and one of them was Anton, and the other one was Keith. And I just immediately liked him, and I, I remember thinking it, Keith had said something about wanting to do his own music and wanted to get a record deal and wanted to be in a band, and that they were just doing this as a, you know, a temporary gig to make money. And that just really, that was like, I, when he said that, I thought, this is the one. This is the one. If I'm going to give him my number, and he seemed interested in me, and I thought, if he calls me, I'm definitely going to go check it out. Um, and I figured, if he doesn't call me in the next couple of days, I'm going to uh, call him. I, I don't care. So the next day, he called me after I had met him, and it was about 11 or 11.30 at night. And he said, "We, you know, I talked to uh, Amanda, who was the singer, and Keith, uh, and Anton, and we'd love for you to come down and have a listen to our music. And I said, I'd love to. When, when, when are you thinking? And he said, right now. And I'm like ready for bed. It was like one of the few nights where I'd taken a bath and already tucked in, like thinking. And I thought, get your ass up. This is it. This is the one. This is what you've been waiting for 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 years. See, when I was when I had run away with Danny, we would jam, you know, but we were always like a basement band and it usually was just me on keyboards and him on drums and it just I always had the stream and it bothered me that he wasn't uh, he he didn't have sort of the same ambitions. So I was very much focused on wanting to make it at that point. I wasn't half-assed about it at all. I was going out every night. I was sneaking backstage. I was networking and going to tracks and to clubs and talking to people. And, you know, I got a job in a music store. So it was all moving in that direction. So it's not like I was, you know, a waitress in, in, in like a, in, in a bar or restaurant. And then all of a sudden I decided I wanted to be in music. This was started when I was four. You know, music was my first language and it still is. Um, anyway, they invited me down and we ended up jamming and, uh, yeah, it was really funny because Amanda said something like it was too late to go back uptown. I lived up on 70th and on the West side and they were down in Soho in a loft. And Amanda said, you should just stay, spend the night. You can sleep with Anton in his room. And we went, okay, (laughs) 
So I went in the room and slept with him and he became my boyfriend. I mean, that's how funny it is when you're young. You're just young and stupid. And it's like, it doesn't take much if you're attracted to someone to go, you know, okay, let's give this a shot. So he was my boyfriend in the band for about two and a half years. He's still a very good friend of mine, um, as is Keith. We're all buddies. Okay. A couple of things. A, what happened to Keith and Amanda ultimately? And then Amanda has a baby with Keith when you get there. Then she ends up being involved with Anton. As they say, where are all these people today? Yeah, you know, people talk about the the social sort of incestuous stuff that went on in Fleetwood Mac, but we had them beat because when I broke up with Anton, it, it was just too much, you know, like as we were trying to get a deal— it was just 24-7 too much, and I knew that being in the band, that that was the more important of the two. So we, I moved out of, uh, I had moved in the loft, and we were all living in this loft together except the bass player. And so I decided that I was going to move into my own place. And then about a year later, as things started to de- deteriorate between Amanda and I for reasons that I, I write about in the book. She's the only one I don't talk to. Uh, well, I don't talk to Jimmy, but it's not because I'm not talking to him. It's it's more like uh, I don't, just don't know where he is. Um, he was an amazing bass player. But anyway, so after, I think it was going on while I was in the band. I still don't know, and I've never really asked him. But Amanda divorced Keith. They still had the child Shay together. And then she started seeing Anton. At this point, I had left the band, So, but I knew something was going on. I told him I'd finish out the tour. She just made a switch and went from, and they were best friends. They had grown up together in South Africa, and Amanda's also South Af- African. And uh, I think Keith was more like, you can have her, take her, she's yours, take her off my hands. Um, but you'd have to ask him, but that, that's the story that I got. And then they got married. And they had a child together. So now the lead singers had gotten married to two different members at, at, uh, at different times and had children with both of them. And um, Keith and Anton are still like best friends. <laughs> That's the best part. They don't talk to her, but they're like boys stick together, you know. Um, so I, I think the whole thing's actually pretty funny when I think about it now. So tell us about changing your name. So we all, we were so focused on getting a record deal and, you know, we wrote original material uh, and I changed my name because my original name, which is German Jewish, which I meant, you know, I talk about in the book, it just didn't, nobody ever pronounced it correctly in the first place. Um, And I was just trying to think of a name that would be cool. And I had a dream one night uh, and in the dream I was Holly Knight. So Holly's always been my name. Uh, but the night came to me in a dream, and I never questioned it. It just seemed so normal in the dream. I loved it, and I, when I woke up, I thought, that's it. And I didn't really read into it until much later as my life started unfolding, the significance of the word knight, because the knights are warriors, and they're fighters, you know, and they protect people. I just liked it because it was British. I was sort of, without knowing what an Anglophile was, I was a total Anglophile, and it all started with James Bond, and then I'm just, to this day, it's like English accent just melts me. Um, and it's a very common name in England. It's like akin to what Smith is here, you know, but also just the rhythm of it, because I 
now I look back and I go, okay, the rhythm of lyrics and the rhythm of things. Holy night. I have a son, Tristan Knight, Dylan Knight. It's, it's all the same sort of, you know, rhythm to it. Um, and, and that's, it's funny because all these years I've had different publishing companies and I always sort of play around with the word night. So I've had, my first pu- publishing company was Nighty Night. Of course, these are all with K's, okay? Nighty Night, then I had Nightclub, then I had um, Nightlife Music, uh, my Instagram is Night Vision, then I had a, another publishing company, because every time you change your publishing deal, you have to change your publishing name, or at least I did, and, and then I had Good Night, like Good Night Songs, and the one that I have now is Nighted, Nighted Songs. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, you end up connecting with Bill Alcoin. Tell us about that and what Bill was really like. Bill was like no other manager that I've met, and I've met a lot of them, worked with a lot of them over the years. He was very unique. He was very charismatic for a manager. Uh, he managed KISS, and what happened was, uh, I'll try and make this really short. There were three South Africans in the group, and they befriended Eddie Kramer, who was also 
You know, they had that expatriate thing right. going, another South African. And for those that are listening, if you don't know, um, you know, he did Hendrix and Zeppelin as, as a producer. He wanted to produce the band when we got our record deal. And um, so Bill Coyne was managing Kiss, and they each were about to do a solo record. Eddie Kramer was doing Ace Frehley's record. And Keith thought, oh, I have a song. And he said to Eddie, can you give this to Ace? Maybe he'll cut it. Well, Ace heard the song and didn't really care for it, but he loved the drummer. And that was Anton. So he said, do you think he would come and play on the record? So he did. Then they became friends, party animal friends. And um, and Kiss heard Anton play on Ace's record. And they were like, oh, my God, we should get him to play on the Kiss records because Peter Chris was, you know, he was uh, a mess at the time and uh, wasn't really in any condition to play on any record. So Anton ended up playing on Dynasty as well. Uh, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. It's all in the book. There's a great chapter on the spider and Kiss thing. And anyway, that's how we met the band. We met Kiss, and we started to get to know them. Um, because I was Anton's girlfriend, every time Anton would go out drinking or partying, I was, in, I was invited because I was the girlfriend, you know. So I got to know Ace. And, you know, eventually that got to, to Bill, who came down to see us play. We were the house band at a club called Tracks. And he came back uh, to the little dressing room. It was the size of a bathroom. We were all practically naked, standing there changing. And he's just talking like, doesn't care at all that we're changing in the same room. He goes, I want to manage you. And we were like, what? We, we looked at each other like, did we really hear him say that? And he says, yeah, I want to manage you. And we all screamed like, holy fuck, you know, or some form of it. Because everybody wanted Bill Coin. He was like the superstar. There were a few of them, but he was definitely one of them. And uh, then that's how we ended up going about trying to get our deal. And we signed to Rocksteady, which was, uh, you know, the production company. But going back to what was Bill like, okay, well, Bill was totally out with being gay at a time that nobody was really being out with it. He just didn't care. He just wore it like a badge on his coat. And speaking of coats, he didn't look anything like rock and roll. This guy wore like suits, business suits and a tie. Um, you know, so we really, really kind of elegant or whatever. And even though he looked really straight, he's probably one of the most rock and roll trashy people, like when it came to, you know, his own personal lifestyle and stuff. But, um, yeah, I liked him immensely, but, you know, he favored the boys in the band. So he would try and if we would go over to his fancy apartment in the Olympic Towers, which was really sort of a fabulous place. You know, disco music would be playing, and he'd be giving the guys, like, something that would keep them up and erect, and he was giving us something that would just make us pass out so that he could have his way with the boys. And again, like, you think of the Me Too, you know what? And even me, like, we just looked at him like, fuck off, and we would laugh about it, and then he would laugh, and that was it. You know, he never... He never actually tried to, like, uh, do something with the guys unless they were willing at that time. That's my take on it. And we never took any of his drugs. We were like, I'm not taking that, you know. I'm not going to go to sleep in your apartment. So, um, I don't know. I look at it as all part of the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll territory. And it was really good fun, you know. And I, I really liked Bill a lot. So, tell us about getting hooked up with the commander, Mike Chapman. Right. Um, 
I really like some of the things I've read that you've written about him, by the way, and things where I wanted to chime in because um, you, you were interested in, in all that. Mike was, again, very much like Bill Coin, in as much as he was one of the straightest looking guys. Like he would always wear white polo shirts and white tennis shorts and sneakers. He just looked so straight, you know, and he is probably one, of the, uh, to this day, I could say one of the most rock and roll guys I know. Um, because it's a mindset, you know, it's not about what you're wearing. And I was uh, going out with a guy named Gray who worked at the record plant, and he had done quite a lot of records with Mike. Uh, he did the Blondie records, and he did a lot of stuff before that during the sort of CBGBs period. And he told me that I should check out Mike Chapman. And he said, you know, what's different about him is he's uh, he's a really good songwriter. So you don't just get someone that's pushing the faders. You're going to get someone that really knows how to write tunes and knows good tunes. And and he said, and I, and, and I thought that was really important because I always thought the only way you're going to get on the radios is to have like great songs, you know? Um, you know, I mean, the word pop, we all know, comes from the word popular, but that doesn't mean what it means now in today's world that pop sometimes is looked down upon as cheesy or lightweight. Pop, to me, back then, just meant it was popular because it was weird. It was so, so good that everybody wanted to hear it, you know? Um, so I sort of made it my business. While they were trying to get Eddie, I was trying to get Mike. And at this point, I had discovered that I could write songs. Um, and, and and I say this in the book, I just started writing because they were writing, and their songs kind of were pretty mediocre, and they weren't the kind of songs that were going to get us on the radio. So I just started thinking, well, if they have the confidence to do it, I'm going to have the confidence to do it. And that's really how I became, initially, how I started writing. And so by the time my friend Gray had told me about Chapman, I thought, yeah, it's very, very important to have good songs, you know. So I, we didn't have the internet in that day. So, and I kept saying to Bill, Bill, can you try and get a hold of Mike Chapman? And Bill was busy with Kiss. That was the other thing. Like we always, everybody else came second because Kiss was the moneymaker. So we, a lot of times we were, we were left to our own devices to figure these things out. And I think maybe he thought it was premature anyway. But anyway, as serendipity would have it, I met him at a club at Tracks. Uh, I met him at the club Tracks where we were the house band, and I was talking to the Knack, who he had just produced. He had done my Sharona. And um, and we were talking to him. Someone had introduced us, and Mike walked over, and they introduced us, and, you know, this Australian slang. Kind of now I look back, and I thought he looked like Paul Hogan from uh, Crocodile Dundee. Um, and we had a nice enough chat. It was nothing or whatever. And then he excused himself to go to the bar and get a, a drink, and... And Prescott, the bass player, said, that's Mike Chapman. Oh, he produced our record. He didn't even say Mike Chapman. He said he was the one that produced our record. And I said, was that Mike Chapman? Because when they introduced me, they just said Mike, not knowing that I'm looking everywhere for this guy. So the minute I found out it was Mike, they said, yeah, it's Mike Chapman. So I went, I found Anton, who was wandering that, around the club, and I had to beat it out of him to get the tape. We had just done a bunch of songs, demos, to try and get a record deal, and he didn't want to give it to me because he said it was my own copy, and I, um, I, I didn't beat it out of him, but I, close to it. And he gave it to me, and I, I kissed him on the cheek and ran away and gave it to Mike. And I said, I didn't know you were the Mike Chapman. I'm so sorry because um, I've been looking for you. I've been hunting you down, and I need. I'm going to court you 
because I want you to produce, uh, you know, I said all these things, like there's a really long speech. And finally I said, would you listen to the tape? <laughs> we're, we're, you know, And he, I remember he stuck it in his pocket and I'll never forget. He patted and he said, yep, I'm going to listen to this tape. He said, but I have to tell you, I'm a bit of an asshole when it comes to calling people back. He said, just keep calling me. I'm at the record plant. I'm doing a Blondie record. He was working on Auto American, which had all those huge hits on it, like uh, Rapture and um, The Tide is High. Was, was Tide is High? Yeah, yeah. Thing. Uh, anyway, yeah. And so uh, I, he, he would never take my call. And I called him for two weeks straight, and I could hear in the background, he's going, oh, shit, it's that Holly Night chick again. I told her to call me. Because I remember I heard Debbie once saying, like, who is she? Is that your girlfriend or something? Or, you know, <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. You know. So um, he didn't call me back. And I, I guess when you asked me the question before, was I aggressive? I guess the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> see, to me, I'm normal. So I don't think of it in terms of, of aggressive. Uh, but he told me I could. He told me to be relentless. So I took him up on it. And that's, to me, that's what it takes, you know. You, you just try and hope that you're not being obnoxious. You know, there comes a point, there's a fine line between obnoxious and just, you know, um, for two, uh, you know, just, I can't think of the word right now, but tenacious. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he called me up and he said, I'm leaving today. I'm done with the record. I'm getting on the plane, going back home to LA. I, and my heart sunk. I thought, He's not, we lost that chance. And he goes, no, he says, I'm going to listen to your tape on the plane. I have nowhere to go. I'm a cap. I'm a, I'm not going anywhere. I'm a captive listener. So I will call you in a few weeks. And I, I was like so excited. And I hung up and said, like, Oh God, I can't, I can't wait to tell the, 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 the guys in the band. And eight hours later, he called me and he said, I listened to your tape three times on the plane. He says, you guys are fabulous. I have a record label and I want to sign you. Okay, this and, is a complicated yeah. thing. Mike was the guy with the Ochina chap mm -hmm. with his partner in uh, Nikki Chin in the UK. And he moves to LA and forms Dreamland Records. Ultimately, he's too busy to record your record. You work with Peter Coleman, who's got a pretty good track record himself, certainly, you know, with Pat Benatar on the first album, etc. In retrospect, was that a misstep? Forget that it led to your songwriting career. Do you think that Spider would have broken through if you signed with a regular major record company? Uh, it's possible. I mean, things happen there. You know, at any at any given point, you can take this road to the left or this road to the right, and it changes the trajectory of everything. Um. So. It's hard to say. Maybe if we'd have been in a major label, uh, we would have uh, gone on to make, well, I mean, we, we made two records, but we would have gone on to make a third record, and it would have been in the direction of a song that I wrote on the second record with Mike Chapman, um, which was Better Be Good to Me and became the second single on Tina Turner's Private Dancer. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I... I just really wanted, to, I, I wanted to um, work with Mike. I wasn't, I mean, it was nice that he owned the label and it's great because we got a deal. Um, and who knows if we would have gotten another deal. Uh, you know, we had a couple of labels that had passed on us. 
uh, or we had one, I think it was Sony, they, they liked us a lot, but they wanted to see us live and we were getting ready to do that when this all happened. And we just thought, let's just go for this. You know, I thought he was so, so cool. Um, and the kind of records that he was doing were so artsy. You know, he just had this reputation for doing things that were artsy but commercial. And to do both is very hard, okay? It's one thing to be able to write something that's super artsy but people can't relate to or latch their their hooks into. And it's very easy to write something that's commercial fluff, which is an artsy. But to meet in the middle and do both, that's that's the that's the key to writing for me, writing great songs. Um, so, you know, I mean, even when, when I was writing Love is a Battlefield with him, that to me is a little bit more daring and archy a title. It's not your normal title, like, you know, like a lot of songs. So I, I just, I like that. I like the fact that he was successful. I like the fact that he lived in London and had done all the glamour stuff, like, you know, um, The Sweet and, and um, some of those other bands. Even Susie Quattro. I mean, there weren't a lot of women doing rock, and so when he, when he said he loved the band, um, that meant a lot. And what meant even more was when I decided to leave the band because what happened was, as we were doing a couple of records, we would never tell the label who wrote what. We would just turn in the songs because we wanted them to be, you know, unbiased. Just pick the songs you like. And they would always pick mine, and they would always end up being the single. And um, that just created a lot of animosity in the band. And what's weird was it wasn't from the guys as much, much as it was from the singer who was a girl. Like I was more, um, I was, my alliance was more with the guys, and it, it kind of shifted with her. But I'm not sure if some of the personal stuff that was going on probably had something to do with it, too. Um, although I, I never really talked to her about it, but I decided to leave the band. And um, Mike became my future. He became my mentor, you know, more than anybody that I can think of in my life. With all the people that I've written in my entire career, I think to this day, my favorite person to write with is Mike because he's the real thing, you know? And he's he's got that thing that I try to have as well, which I think I do, is to be artsy, but also to be uh, commercially successful. Okay. To what degree every single act, Shandy Cinnamon, everything stiffed on his label, <laughs> to what degree yes. did that affect him? Well, he ended up uh, breaking up the label and just sort of ending that whole relationship with Nikki Chen. Um, I think there was a lot of stuff that was going on also that between them that he was just he just reached the end of his rope. I mean, you know, they, they, they had this famous Chinny Chap alliance, you know, the great songwriters. And you think, oh, it's like Lennon McCartney. Right. But in Lennon McCartney's case, they actually both contributed and were both geniuses. In Mike's case. Nikki was the business partner, and Mike was the artist and the writer. And Nikki was, he could call himself a writer. Anybody can call himself a writer. But I've written with Nikki, and I can tell you that he's not a writer. And Mike is. And Mike, for some stupid reason, just kept giving up income and credit, credit, sorry, kept giving up credit to Nikki for songs that basically sat there with a yellow pad. And I know this because Mike is, we've talked about it. And I said, are you okay with me talking about this? I mean, you know, um, 
he said, I want you to talk about it. I am so sick of it. I want people to know what really happened. But, you know, all those great songs that came out of them and stuff, um, it was pretty much, it was Mike. And, and I write about it in the book because the first song I ever wrote with Mike was Better Be Good To Me. And that became our, was going to be our second single on the Spider record. And a few weeks later, after we had recorded it, oh, by the way, he ended up producing that. See, that was part of my little scheme was I thought if I could get him to write with me, maybe I can just get him to produce it. And because he was such a, I mean, the he was a great producer, um, just got great performances out of the band, like so much more than Peter ever did. I mean, Peter was a sweetheart, but Mike was, Mike was like, you know, he was like a supernova. He, he really had that skill and we didn't sound the same on that track. It, it, there's actually a version of it out there on YouTube where we played that song in Germany, and you can hear our version. And it's much more kind of druggy. It's like it's like Lou Reed's Take a Walk on the Wild Side, you know? And I love Tina Turner's version, but it's very, very fast and upbeat and, and, and all that. But anyway, I walked into the office, and Nikki's name was on the song, on the lyrics. And I said to Mike, um, I think there's a mistake. Nikki's name is on the lyrics. And he said, yeah, I know. And I kind of looked at him. I was so young, and I was I, I was starstruck at, the, at that point with Mike, just the fact that he was working with me because everybody was always approaching him, wanting him to do their next record. You know, he just had number one after one after one. And so I was very careful. I didn't want to... I didn't want to piss him off, and I didn't want him to think that I was being an ingrate, but I, I wasn't happy about it. And he said, I tell you what, he said, just agree to this. It'll never happen again. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, because I, he's been doing this for years, and I'm done with it. I'm, I, we have a partnership agreement that whenever we, one of us writes, we both share in it. Of course, Nikki never really wrote anything significant without Mike, or with Mike, actually, <laughs> Um he said, just agree to it, and you'll never have to do it again. So I did. So to this day, I just, like, I get, you know, I get, I get angry when I see his name there. And the thing is, I'm not the only one. I mean, this happens all the time to songwriters. You know, where a publisher, or not a publisher, a producer will just add their name. Well, they won't add their name, but they'll give you an ultimatum. If you don't put me on as a songwriter, um, we're not cutting your song. So... You know, after that happened, I just, I vowed I would never agree to that again. I didn't care who it was. They were either going to write the song with me, but I wasn't going to, even if it was someone like Madonna, I wasn't going to let them put their name there just so I could get the cut. Okay. Where is Mike today? And you said he said you could tell his story. Where is he today? Is he working and how much contact you have with him? He lives in London. Um, he is working sort of in the trendy uh, Shoreditch sort of musicians. He's working with a lot of young people. I have no idea what he's put out. I mean, I don't really, I don't think he's, I don't, I don't know. He's always busy working on something, but I, I, you know, I have to say like, this happens to everybody. It happened to me. It happened to him. It's happened to you too. It's happened to everyone. You have some point in your career where it's just explosive. And then you're sort of established and you go on and you continue, but you're not always on the top forever. You know, even if your talent is still the same, even if you've gotten better or whatever, it's just sort of like a rite of passage that goes on to the next person or, or whatever. I mean, even groups like the Stones, it just happens, you know. So 
I think his last, uh, you know, his really big period was also during the 80s, you know. I mean, I've since then, I've had, a, you know, I've had a lot of stuff happening. Um, I've written songs for movies and TV themes and all that. But the 80s was really what this book is about. That It was just crazy, this, the amount of success and how well it was going and everything. And fortunately, it was such a significant time period that it's... <laughs> It's bigger now than ever. I get more covers now on those songs than I did back then, you know. But going back to Mike, we're on very good terms. We go through a love-hate period where sometimes I want to kill him or sometimes he wants to kill me. He's still as rude as, as ever when it comes to returning calls. Um, he's kind of an asshole that way, probably by his own admission. And he just, he disappears. He's very eccentric. But then when we see each other, it's like... It's like we never stop talking, and it's there's there's a very strong bond and love there, you know. Um, and it's interesting because in the beginning, like I said, I was so starstruck to be working with him that like I just sponged up stuff and I never talked back to him. And then as I started getting older and started having success without him and things like that, where he would challenge me on something, or I would end up calling him a prick, you know. I mean, it's really, it's that classic thing of, you know, the mentor protege and then the protege matures and it can never be the same for the mentor. You can never catch up. The protege is never allowed to catch up with the mentor, even if that person has or has surpassed them, you know. But um, I think he's immensely talented, immensely eccentric, and uh, he's still alive and kicking. That's all I can, pretty much I can say about him. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, let's talk about the process a little bit. You co-wrote with Mike. Do you like to co-write? Would you rather do it yourself? Do you see it as a job? I wake up, uh, I got to put something down, or do you wait for inspiration? Tell me about all that. Okay, yeah, those are good questions. Um, I do like to collaborate. I always have, um, if it is the right match. If it's not the right match, you really end up babysitting the writer. And I've gone through that where the record label has sent me... uh, has sent me people to work with and it's like songwriters 101 where they're sitting there on their phone and they're texting and I'm doing all the, the the heavy lifting and going do you like this is this like something you would do I mean I need some feedback here you know um and what happens it's kind of like look you could be the world's greatest tennis player and if you're playing a game when someone that doesn't hit the balls back you can play the worst game of your life so if I don't like the person I'm running with um I'm too nice to say you know that that's got to go or whatever. I just can't do it. So I don't really like those kind of collaborations. Um, I've only had maybe five people in my entire career that I've just absolutely loved working with and felt that's what collaboration is supposed to be about. Like you're both sort of super tools and you both bring something that maybe on your own you wouldn't create. Or a lot of times I'll be running on my own and I'll think this is great. And then the more I play it, I start to think this sucks. But if you're collaborating with someone and they go, no, that that part's the best part. Like, well, why don't we try this? And then they put it in a different slant. And then all of a sudden, that's when collaboration is great, you know? Um, but that doesn't happen that often. So I these days I like to write a lot on my own because I'm older and I just I guess I've been doing it long enough. I, you know, um, I just have plenty to say and write about, but I don't like collaborating with a lot of people at the same time. The first time I sort of experienced that was in Nashville. And, you know, of course, of course now, you know, you see a lot of, a lot of people listed on one song or whatever. I'm, I'm, I don't write like that. I'm very old school, you know. Um, even though I know a lot about programming and I do all my own Pro Tools stuff and programming, um, I save that for after. I'm very old school where I like to sit down with a guitar or a bass guitar or obviously keyboards and 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 write and um, doing songs by committee just seems like a free ride to me for for a lot of people that you know they end up being called songwriters but the, I think their gigs are a little bit different you know um, for instance a a, a programmer on, right a, a programmer a, a, to me that's like coming in and playing guitar or whatever that's your job. But if someone can sit down and play the song without your program drums or whatever, that's, you didn't write the song, you know? The song, it's like all the parts that if you miss them, if you take those out, that's what, that's what to me, songwriting is, is about. Um, 
But there are different levels of it and styles, and I acknowledge that. I mean, there are different art forms of the, of the way people go about writing songs. But for me, and I'm not talking about anybody else, for me, it, it's old school. Okay. You know, in Nashville, they literally have appointments. Let's say you're going to collaborate. Do you want to bring something into the session? When the session is over, do you want to work on it? How do you do it? I prefer to bring in something. And, and I talk about this in the book when I was writing either, if I was asked to write with Hart, for instance, which I was, or Bon Jovi, or, you know, uh, whoever I was working with. I liked uh, Rod Stewart, for instance. I liked to walk in with something. And so before I would get together, if I had the luxury that it wasn't the next day, I would just wipe everything off of my schedule and just sit down and jam in the studio alone so that I could walk in. And this is going to date me, but I would walk in with a cassette and a Walkman and start to play something. So the same thing in Nashville. I was actually flown down by Winona Judd to write with her. And I remember looking online and realizing that she wasn't a songwriter. And so I thought, hmm. I better go prepared with like a whole bunch of ideas. So I remember I went to, I was, I had to go to Hawaii. It was vacationing and I had to take my kids because school was out and it was only a time to do it. So I brought a guitar with me and I just recorded all the starts of these ideas so that when I went down to Nashville, um, I would have something to sort of bring to the party. I, I don't really like sort of being, um, I like being on the front end, not the back end. And I, I've done that and I don't really like it. Okay, tell us the story of writing Better Be Good to Me with Mike and how it's ultimately recorded by Tina. I walked in. I had an idea for, for a song. I, I, I had something like Be Good to Me, and he said, well, why don't we make it a little bit more, you know, a little bit more empowering, like Better Be Good to Me. And I went, oh, I like that, you know. And then as Mike and I were wont to do, uh, <laughs> we would just start jamming. Like he would pick up a guitar and I would, play keywords but usually i'd be playing a bass line or something um not because i can't play all that stuff but to me you know bass lines are so important and that's sort of um i've learned since then that's sort of my forte i start a lot of times with a cool bass line um and we wrote that song in one day and then we went and cut it a few days later and then by the time i left uh spider there's a whole, I don't know if you want to hear the whole story of why it didn't get released, but the, the music business, which you, you can read in the book, but the music business went in the crapper when they had that whole payola scheme got exposed and all that. So everybody that put out a record during that time, their record didn't do anything. Unless they were so big, like Zeppelin or something, didn't matter. They didn't need the radio play. But for a new band, you had to have the radio play to get you know heard. Um, that was, I guess, you know, it's funny. It's like, I think that's sort of what our social media was back then, was getting a single on the radio. That's how you advertise the record. Um, very different now. But so, uh, I don't know, it was about a year later. And at this point, I had already written, I think I'd already, it was right around the same time that I had been working with Mike on Love is a Battlefield. And Tina Turner was doing Private Dancer. And someone, the publishers just played the song, to someone that brought it into one of those, you know, A&R meetings where they all sit around and they play back all these different songs. And Tina was there and the, I wasn't in the room, but the urban legend is, is that she got up and started like doing her thing, walking around the room and doing her little stomping 
those little things she does with her legs and saying, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to say. Because she had just left, uh, well, not just, but a few years before, she'd finally gotten up the, the nerve to leave Ike. And before this record, you know, she was she was playing hotels and Vegas things, you know. Nobody had any idea that what was about to happen to her. Um, and Better Be Good to Me was the second single. So that was amazing. That put me on the map right around the same time as Love is Battlefield was becoming a hit. So I had two hits at once. Um, and that that's, I didn't meet her or anything. I mean, you don't always meet, you usually don't meet the, the artist when you're, when you write a song and you hand it over, that's it. It's like putting your kid up for adoption, as I said in the book. It's like, you just hope that they don't fuck the kid up, you know? And, um, you know, uh, that's really kind of when my career started happening. When I, I, I hadn't mentioned this before, but when I left Spider, I went to Mike and I said, what should I do? I don't want to be in this band anymore. And I was really afraid of what he was going to say because I thought he'd try to sue me because they'd put all this money in and I signed a contract. And he said, leave. He said, move out to California. Come out and we'll write together. And if we're not, if we're not writing together, I will... Uh, turn you on to writers that you should be working with. I'll sign you to a new publishing deal. If I have a record and I, and they need a song, he said, of course we want it to come from their camp, but if they can't, I'll go and ask you to write them a song, which he did that also. He did that with Patty Smythe when I wrote the warrior. So I packed up my stuff and my cat and I got on a plane and I moved to California. And it's really funny because I kind of describe all that time before that as film noir, you know, New York City, gritty, cool, edgy, dark. Get to California and all of a sudden it's like Fuji color, cotton candy, you know, this this completely different. I mean, if people think that they know how to party in New York, forget it. Because at least back then in the 80s, it was ridiculous. And so then I started to talk about those escapades and things and you could just sort of like a flower, you could see it unfolding as I started to have more hits and, and things like that. And for a long time, Mike was a big part of that. I mean, some of the best songs I've written, and biggest songs I've written are with him, but I also had a lot of success without him. You know, working with, when I worked with Aerosmith, when I worked with Hart. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm probably getting ahead of myself. Okay, you do Love is a Battlefield. You write that with Mike. And in the book, you say the ultimate version produced by her husband is completely different from how you envisioned it, and you're not happy. Yeah, well, when we first got it, uh, we we just looked at each other like, what the fuck happened to our song? We didn't have a big fancy demo, which was nice. We just put, you know, we put the whole essence of that song out there. And uh, Neil decided that he was just going to put his stamp on it and change it. So we sent them like a real, I say in the book, like a real meat and potatoes, like Game of Thrones kind of anthem for the masses. And they sent us back a dance track with all these crazy um, synthesizers in it and everything. And Neil likes to say that we sent them a, uh, a ballad. It wasn't a demo. It was a typical so type of t 
tempo that I would write, which is sort of like an eighth note mid-tempo rocker, you know. Um, but her vocal was sensational. And w- w- as time went on, we learned to love it. As it went up the charts, we loved it more and more, you know. Um, but there have been all kinds of versions of it that are actually closer to what we did. You know, also I did an audio book and I narrated it. It's out now too. Uh, and it has demos of some of those songs. So I have the demo to Love is a Battlefield or the demo to The Best and The Warrior with Nick Gilder singing on it. And I've never played them to anyone. So what I like about it is when you hear those demos, you can go, yeah, it's all there. It's all there. You know, maybe tempo's different bells and whistles, whatever. I would have to say that um, out of all the songs that we did, I think his, um, you know, their interpretation was more of a departure than other songs that I've had out there. So I kind of go into it in the book, you know. Okay. So tell us about The Warrior and how it ends up getting to Patti Smythe. Mike was doing a record with Patti and scandal and uh he felt that they didn't have enough uh singles or any singles maybe they had they, they had some good songs though they not that i liked um but they didn't have the one that was really going to put them on the map uh so he said i want you to write a song for them i'm producing the record and they need something i don't have the time he said, i'm going to introduce you to nick gilder and he had had a number one hit with nick with hot child in the city and I loved his quirkiness, his, his voice. You know, I, I thought for the longest time Nick Gilder was a woman because of the voice, you know, it was so high and everything. Anyway, we met. We talked about the fact, I played him some stuff that, that Patty had done, like Goodbye to You. And uh, that was another song they had that I liked. Um, and so we wrote, we ended up writing The Warrior. But then I sent it to... I sent it to Mike, and maybe he was in a shitty mood that day or something, but <laughs> he didn't really respond. And it was sort of like going to the Oracle. It's like when he loved something, you know, I'd be walking on air, and if he didn't like something, I'd be like like so depressed, like I wanted to kill myself, you know. And I thought, but this is a really good song. Like, how can he not hear this? Like, what's wrong with him? But I didn't really say anything or whatever. In the meantime, Nick was really happy that he didn't love it because Nick wanted to record it. He wanted it to be a single for him. And then uh, like a day or so later, maybe a week, I don't know, Mike called up and he said, you know that song, that that warrior song that you sent me? He said, I can't find it. He said, could you send me a copy of it? And I thought, I said, sure, I'll, I'll drop it off. And I remember hanging up going, you know, he's been, sing- he's been walking around singing that motherfucking song for the last few days and realizes it's just that good. So, and that's exactly what happened. And so he said, he calls me up after he leaves me because this song is a fucking hit. We're cutting it. It's going to be their single. And so he went in the studio with him. In the meantime, Nick said, I don't, I don't want her to cut it. And and Mike had to get like really tough on him and say, "Look, I'm the publisher of of Lisa of Holly's share, and I won't let you release a song. I will not. This is because there's a there's a rule that says, or a law that says, when you write a song, you get to say who cuts it as the songwriter the first time. Once it's out there, anybody can cut it as long as they pay you, you know, and they have to license it and they go through something like a Harry Fox agency." But and, and the reason that's uh, 
very relevant to today is because so many times I don't even know that the song's getting cut. And then I find out by going to a movie or watching a TV show or someone texting me and saying, oh, I love that song. It's the theme song, you know, that one on on Glee or something. This happens all the time. Um, it even happened when when in when Biden did the victory speech. I didn't know until I was watching him accept the speech, and the best came came on. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm very ADD that way. Um, going back to what you were asking, um, Mike just got really tough with him, and so Nikki had to back off, and he did. I think he's really happy now that I think it's the biggest aside from Hot Chum City, probably bigger. Um, it's funny because I just spoke to Patty yesterday because um, we've we've stayed friends and stuff, and uh, we were just talking about it because The Warrior is coming out in two really big movies. Um, I think one's that movie 80 for Brady. It's in yeah, that. that's out, yeah. That's out, yeah. And then it, what's coming out is Cocaine Bear, so The Warrior is in that movie as well. Um, so, yeah, the licensing is just crazy, and she was asking me questions the licensing is just, um, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Now, of course, you mentioned, which anybody who knows the song would remember, that video. Did that video help or hurt the track? I don't think it helped. <laughs> well, I, mean, I thought you know. that it was so sort of stupid and jaw-dropping that it almost worked on that level. It's like, can you watch Can you believe this? Right. And let me tell you that what you just said is the gospel for so many videos during that period of the MTV. I mean, some of those things like Obsession, for instance. When I saw the video to Obsessions, Obsession, and you see these guys walking around in togas serving hors d'oeuvres, you're thinking like, what has that got to do with the song? But did we really care? No. You know, some of the, I mean, the, the Love is a Battlefield one was also a shocker for me, but I thought Patty was really cool looking and I just pictured her as being like a rock chick. And somehow the, the, the makeup artist, I guess she wanted her to look like a ninja. So she, it looked like she had been struck across the face with a lightning bolt, if you remember that. And then they had yeah. her hair swept up in like a Bride of Frankenstein kind of do. And the whole video was just ridiculous. And, I never really talked to Patty about it. And then I saw her when I when I got inducted in the Songwriting Hall of Fame, she inducted me. So she came and she sung The Warrior. So we got together before that just to catch up. And we're sitting in this diner and I I just kind of summoned the courage and I said, Tell me something. What what did you think of the video to The Warrior? And she probably sprayed her soda like <laughs> she goes, I hated it. You know, she's I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. It was ridiculous, you know. Um, but then at the same time, you look back, it's like it's a part of that that time period of that, you know, it's funny, like at the time you see and you go, oh, God, like, but then you look back at it now and it's sort of like there was no time period like that. You know, you got cows walking through the room like while bands are performing and, you know. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, let's stay with the concept of hits. Professionals know you can't write an 11 every day. My experience has been if you create 11, you know. Then there are people like William Goldman said, no one knows anything. What's your experience? Um, can you explain so I'm, I'm accurate when I answer this? It's an interesting question. 11, it's 11. what does so, 11 so, mean? Mean better than 10? 11 is like iconic or in your uh, catalog, the warrior better be good to me or something like that. When you write something of that caliber, do you know it's a hit? That's the first question. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Um, we knew when we wrote Love is a Battlefield that it was a hit. We weren't sure when we heard the version if it was a hit, um, but we knew when we wrote it, it was a hit. And as it turned out, it was an iconic hit. It's an evergreen, even their production of it. Um, but to get to an 11, I don't think you know. I think that that just, you've hit the lottery. You didn't mean to. I mean, the, the minute you start thinking, I'm going to write something like that, there's no way you're going to do it authentically. There's just no way. So you have to keep it real. So I have to say, and, you know, I wrote about it in the book, when we wrote The Best, we had no idea how big it was going to be. And it wasn't big in the beginning. It's gotten big over 40 years. It's just like a monster that just keeps growing and growing and growing and tapping into something 
you know, in order to have those kind of songs, it, it has to sort of gel with what's going on in the, in the world, you know, because you've got to tap into a collective consciousness of pop, uh, you know, pop culture and society and what's needed at any given time. Um, and I think that the best has done that. I mean, it gets licensed so much. It was just on the Super Bowl. It was licensed for, uh, with Pringles. So it was on the Super Bowl, you know. Um, it's been, the, the use of it has just been like so insane that people just keep relating to it. And when we wrote it, we knew we'd written a very good song. I don't know if we even thought it was as strong as like uh, Love is a Battlefield, you know, because it was straighter. It was just so simple and it was so, you know, Love is a Battlefield, the way we wrote it, just the title was kind of quirky and stuff. But the best was just straight ahead, wholesome, simple, something that people just love to sing. I mean, when it, it then it got on Schitt's Creek and it was on three episodes. Um, and it became like the wedding theme for the LBGT community. I mean, you can't plan those things, you know. Okay, but uh, let's talk about license. the other thing. You said earlier yeah. that you're usually brought in as a first-class utility player. Someone has a project, but they don't have that little something extra. How do you create that little something extra? Are you talking about as a musician or as a songwriter? Songwriter. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I just know that... Um, I like to, I, I think I'm good at, at hooks, you know, and, and, and getting things that are simple enough that people, they're quirky enough that, that they don't, it doesn't sound like I'm selling out and deliberately trying to write a hit song. I just try and write a really great song. And I, you know, I'm not just a fan of, of you know, straight ahead bands like Led Zeppelin or the Beatles. I mean, I'm a fan of Burt Baccarat. You know, I love jazz. I um, I grew up with all different kinds of music and and classical, which I still love, and I implement a lot of that in my songs. So, for instance, I'm really into writing bass lines, and they're the relationship of the bass lines to the chords are are different than the normal. Like, I don't always play the root. I don't mean to get too technical with the music stuff, but I do these things kind of deliberately. You know, I was influenced by people besides Burt Baccarat, Todd Rundgren, and I think I bring all that stuff into the music. But I think also uh, simpler is better. I try and keep things simple. Like, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. I've even been that way in my songwriting. I don't write a lot of songs these days, you know? I think the busiest I ever was was in the 80s. I write when I feel like it. I don't, you know, I don't go in at nine and say I'm going to be done at five. I mean, they do that in Nashville. Like, it's unbelievable. They go, okay, we're going to write from nine to three. The song's going to be written by three. And then we have another session, so we have to go. And I don't write like that, you know. I mean, even when we wrote Love's a Battlefield, we wrote the whole thing in one day. But then we spent another week coming up with the one line. And we came up with hundreds. We just didn't like them, you know. Um. So I, I don't really think like a business person when I write. I think like an artist, I, you know. Anytime I've tried to do that, I've written the worst piece of shit. But okay. That was years ago. So uh, do you have any hits in your suitcase? Stuff you've written that people mean either have not, that either people have not cut or they've cut in a bad way or haven't been promoted that way? Uh, all of the above. And I have, yeah, I call it my boneyard. And some of the best stuff I've written 
is in that boneyard. And I now it's like because it's 40 years later, I think of it as vintage Holly Night, but it's still like ready to be, you know, birthed out there. I have a lot of songs like that. It's crazy. Okay, let's talk about working with Aerosmith. Aerosmith comes back to run, get, uh, have a first record done with Mirrors, completely stiff. They're doing the second album. They call you in what ends up resulting is Ragdoll, which is the biggest track off that album. So tell us how that came to be. Well, my friend John Kolodner called me up, um, and he was sort of, before I had met him during the Heart Sessions, and uh, we just became friends, and he thought I was a badass, so he called me up and he said, listen, I got this song, and he kind of talks like that, as, as you know. Yes. Um, well, wait, wait, wait. When, when is the last time you spoke with Kolodner? It's been decades, but um, when my book came out, he was writing me on LinkedIn <laughs> saying, that's great, I can't wait to read it and everything. Um, but he had signed, He at that point he was with Geffen Records, he was the president of Geffen Records, and what I liked about him was like he really honored a lot of bands that still had a lot of life in them and maybe even new life that they had never even had before, that they weren't quite ready to be put out to pasture, which everybody else was doing, you know? So he signed quite a few bands, he, you know, and Aerosmith was one of them. And he said to them, this is a make or break record. And at that point, they had gotten really, really clean. So there were a lot of things going on. And he matched me up with Stephen. He said, I'm going to send you a song. Would you have a listen to it? He said, I think it's a really good song, potentially. He says, it's not a hit. I don't know if it's going to be a hit, but if you could take a look at it um, and tell me what you think, if you want to work on it. So that's what he did. And he sent it to me. And I said, well, well wait a minute. Um, how does Stephen feel about this? And Joe Perry, I mean, I don't want to be shoved down their throat. Um, which is really funny because when I did talk to Stephen, I actually said that to him. And, and of course, that provoked a really, you know, flirtatious comment um, when I said, oh, I don't want that to be shoved down your throat. But, um, no, he was all for it. He had talked to John and, 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 uh, I think they were just sort of like, they were so clean and so excited to be given a new lease, a lease on life that they were open to this stuff. You see, a lot of bands were never, would never have been open to this. It, to them, it's like selling out. It's like, if you can't write your own songs, you're not worth, you know, anything. And I think that's a bit sad that they think that way because it's like, if you're a great actor, it doesn't mean you can write a great screenplay, you know? And some look at Tina Turner, she doesn't write her own thing. So I don't think it's something to be ashamed of. And I think enough people started doing it that there was a group of songwriters that was kind of referred to as the songwriter elite. And they would go out and write with these people. And I was one of them. You know, Desmond Child was another. Billy Steinberg was another. Um, and so... And I think the fact that I was a woman, a woman definitely interested Stephen, you know. So uh, he called me up, and we ended up talking for two weeks on the phone before I actually, not two weeks solid. I mean, like every day you call me up like clockwork. Hey, how you doing? How's your day been? And, you know, and we just kind of talked for sometimes two hours, four hours, and became friends before we ever met each other. And you know, eventually the conversation got around to, okay, we got to nail this. We got to hit this out of the park. And I said to him, look, I don't think it needs a lot of changes. See, unlike some people, they hear something and they just want to change it just so they their ego can be satisfied. Like they changed it 
and put their stamp on it. I'm more like, I don't really have a, a big ego when it comes to my career. I, I always think like, what's best for the song? Just like when I was writing the book, does it serve the book? If it's, if it's, you know, trim the fat off or, or if it's something that you have a, a personal thing going on with someone, but it really doesn't need to be in the book, then it doesn't need to be in the book. So I said to Steven anyway, um, I don't think it needs to be rewritten. I think the track is beautiful. I think a lot of it's good, but the song means nothing to me. And it was called Ragtime, you know? So I was able to, I felt like I was the, the, the doctor that came in to like, you know, tighten the screw or whatever, the specialist. And it worked. You know, we changed the lyrics, uh, some of the lyrics to match with, I came up with the ragdoll. Um, but it is not the way I like to write. You know, I don't, as I said before, you said, well, you know, like, how do you like, I like to be the initiator. I like to bring in a, a new, fresh idea or be jamming in the room, you know, uh, together. But I don't like, being brought in to change something that's already been, I feel like I'm trampling on like a, like a, you know, hallowed ground, like a graveyard or something. Um, so it, it worked out in this case, but I, I, I sort of made it a point after that not to do that. I also did it because I wanted to work with, with Aerosmith. I was just such a huge fan. And at that point they were kind of over. I mean, they'd been doing so many drugs and the record they had put up before that was, was not a good record, you know? Um, I just wanted to be able to say that I'd worked with them. I didn't even care if they sold another record or not. I just was a big fan, you know. Talk about rejuvenation. You you also rejuvenate heart. Now, you say mm -hmm. they're very happy about that, but did you ever work with one of these people, say, and they said, we'll pay you, but we're not putting your name on the record? Not as a songwriter. I mean, I did that with Kiss when I played on a Kiss on Mass. I played on the whole record and um, or most of it, and they told me, you're, "You, we're not giving you credit. You can't have credit." And I knew that Anton had also had to agree to the same thing. You know, we're going to pay you, and they paid him very well, but we're not. You, we can't tell people that you're that Peter Chris is out and you're in. Um, although they did offer him the job, they actually, after a few records, they actually asked him if he would join Kiss. And I have to say, you know, in a in a in a in a amazing feat of loyalty, he turned them down. I don't know if he regrets it now, but um, you know, because they're still out there killing it. Um, but uh, that never happened as a writer, and I never would have worked with anyone if they said I wasn't going to get a credit and I was going to ghostwrite. I would. Told him to fuck off. Okay, so you have all these hits. Originally, you're signed to Mike's publishing company. How much of this stuff do you own outright, and how hard has it been to get paid? It's never hard to get paid. I've been, <laughs> I get paid because I have the right people surrounding me that make sure I get paid, and I have deals with people that I consider to be. Uh, honest and ethical, um, which is almost unheard of, right? That's like my business manager. I've been, her name's Tina Fassbender. I've been with her 35 years. And you hear all these nightmare stories. Uh, it's like the Me Too thing. Somehow I've just managed to always, I mean, again, not to say that I haven't had a lot of crappy things happen, but when it comes to those kind of horror stories that you hear about, I've been, uh, really fortunate not to get ripped off. 
Um, and here's the other part that's great. Um, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I did sell a big part of my catalog uh, for a lot of money to a, a company named Primary Wave, which is now, you know, they're buying up so many catalogs. Um, but I have a very good relationship with them. I mean, the CEO, Larry Mistel, if I, if I text him, he texts me back immediately. It's not like my experience in the past. You know, I was signed to EMI Publishing for many years. It was like just to get a response or respect or anything was always so hard. So um, I have these good relationships with these people, and they're out there killing it for me, getting all these covers now. I mean, I have so many amazing covers because I have someone actually working. Like, we're all—it's a win-win for everybody, you know? But the other thing I was going to say was, uh, you know, there's this law that after you've written a song for 35—and you've written a song— and 35 years go by, and you approach the person that has the publishing on whatever songs you're talking about, and you get a lawyer and you say, I want the songs back. They have to give them back to you. So I've gotten back copyrights uh, for songs that I originally gave away. Didn't know I was giving it away, but it turned out to be a blessing because if I hadn't given them away and I owned them, they would have been part of the catalog sale. But because I didn't own them, I couldn't sell them. And then after the catalog sale had happened, I knew I was getting these songs back. And so I did. I got back all my publishing to songs like The Warrior, Love is a Battlefield, Obsession, Better Be Good to Me. So uh, that was a really nice, uh, that's only been in the last few years that's happened because, you know, you, you, like if you write a song, it has to be 35 years from the date. And I ended up telling a lot of songwriters that that didn't know about that. In fact, I told Steven Tyler that. I, he didn't know anything about that. And hopefully he listened to me and he got, you know, some of his publishing back. Okay. you All those songs you just mentioned are not part of Primary Wave deal. Love is a Battlefield Warrior. Those are separate, right? Right. Okay. No, well, Larry, no, they, they, they own it. They own a piece of it, but um, they could only buy what I had available. So some of it would have would have been other things, which I can't really like get into the details in the interview. Well, but, well, well um, I mean, you know, I publishing know wasn't one wasn't one of them. Okay, but I know Larry pretty well. He usually mm -hmm. likes to buy fifty percent before a hundred percent. Exactly. Does he own a hundred percent or just fifty percent? Um, I can't really. I'm not really comfortable talking. Okay. About that. Okay. Okay, so what'd you do with the money? What do I? What did I do with the money? Yeah, this always intrigues me. Okay, because yeah. musicians are not known for being good for the money. If you sold your catalog within the last year and invested in the stock market, you immediately took a thirty percent haircut. So I'm always interested. People right. say, "Oh, sell, sell, sell." So what are you going to do with the money? So I'm just, you know, you get this big chunk of change. Where do you put it? Well, first of all, I'm not selling my publishing. That's like the, you know, that's for my kids. And that's very valuable. Um, as far as the other things, like, like I said, I've been with the same business manager for 35 years. Um, I'm Jewish. I'm not the kind of person that, uh, you know, I don't like taking risks because I feel like I've worked so hard to get that money. It's like, I'm not just going to throw it at the stock market, but at the same time, you know, you can't just leave it in the bank between inflation or whatever, you know, you have to, so you have to decide what kind of things you're going to invest in. And I'm always very 
conservative and I've only taken a chunk of it and the rest of it I've invested in different things, you know, I've invested in real estate and I mean, basically the, the, the theory is if you're in it and you just let it sit and pretend it doesn't, you know, it, just leave it alone. It's going to come back. It's going to come back around. So maybe a lot of people lost 30%, but I think what the, the small amount, what I compare my empire that I invested in stock um, was a small amount. I didn't take all the money and just invest it because that's just stupid to me. That's not smart. Um, but I took about a 19% hit. So I have good people working for me. It was last year was brutal, you know. But also real estate. You know, I bought a house that like has like quadrupled in value and it was expensive to begin with. So I'm doing all right. You know? Okay, so the book is focused on the 80s and then it totally cracks me up. You moved to Fairfield, Connecticut, where I grew up. So, oh, really? <laughs> yes. So where did you live in Fairfield? Springfield Hill. Sorry, Greenfield Hill. Which Absolutely. Is beautiful. I mean, Although, that's like, you know, the that when gentleman I up, farmers. Yeah, when I grew up, there were no Jews there, but that's okay. <laughs> but um, did you consciously decide to extract yourself from the scene, or you just sort of found yourself moving away from it? Well, I'll explain to you what happened. Um, I, had, I had already had one child, and I thought, you know, the year that I moved to Connecticut, I, that was the year of the Rodney King beatings, the big earthquake. The mudslides. I mean, that was that horrible year. I think it was 1994 or something like that. And I wanted to have another child. And I thought, I, I don't want to really raise him here because it's like the earthquake was really scary. That alone was scary. Um, so I thought I would move to Connecticut because it was outside of New York and everybody would just hop on a train and come up to the bucolic countryside and work in my studio. The reason I picked Connecticut also is because Mike Chapman had moved there and he bought this estate. It was like the Von Trapp family. There's a long driveway and this big, big house. And it was in Easton, which was just down the road from Weston where Keith Richard lived and Meatloaf. There were some other musicians there, but I wanted to work with him again. I wanted to recapture. I wanted to go back to the beginning where it was just writing great songs. So I wanted to be closer to him. Um, the only thing is, is that we had changed now. I mean, he had children, and I had children. We had other responsibilities. We wrote stuff, but I think we needed to be in LA to write the kind of songs that we wrote. Like if I were to write with him now, I'd still, I'd want to work here. I wouldn't want to work anywhere else, you know. Um, just something that contributed. If you're, you're going to try and recapture what, what was magical or whatever. Um, and I still write edgy songs. I mean, I have a song I just put together with it with. Uh, I produced a band that I've put together of, of women, and it's the the first song we did that I'm putting out is uh, it's an acronym. It's uh, AMFYO, which stands for Adios, motherfucker, you're on your own. So it's not like I've lost the bite or anything or of who I am. You know, I don't know um, what's relevant with what I do um, necessarily as far as production and stuff. What's out there? I mean, the music business is just change so much it's like it just blows my mind you know and i'm still a rocker and it's rock is not really it's sort of coming back or not sort of it is coming back but um so i moved there and <laughs> i 
I liked it the first year or the, you know, having deer was so quaint and charming. And then all of a sudden you realize, well, no, deer aren't quaint and charming because they carry Lyme disease, which is from Connecticut, you know, and all these things that seem so glamorous and beautiful. Um, I hated the weather. I hated living there. And I came back to California one day for a business thing. Like it had, four years had gone by. And in that four years, because I wanted to spend time being a mother and stuff, it's like, what happened to Holly Knight? Where did she go? I left, you know? When I came back, it was all of a sudden like, you know, while you were gone, a new breed just came up and took over. And so I had to spend a lot of time sort of clawing my way back in there. And I did. I always, I've always had songs in, in movies and TV shows and written themes. And, but I could never quite get back to that place that I did in, in the 80s. And that's not to say I'm not going to. I mean, I think it's very easy to have like one wave and then you take some time off and then you have another wave. And I think I'm totally capable of that. And that's why when you ask me if I have songs, you know, in a vault somewhere, it's like, God, yes. It's like, um, I do. And I think a lot of it has to do with how the business has changed. Now I don't, I don't even feel that inspired to want to do what I did before because with streaming and all these things that are going on, you can't really, really carve out. Uh, there's a handful of people that, that are, are doing it, but um, I'm not that interested in it. I sort of like, I feel like I've done that. Like and if I'm going to do something, I don't want it to be contrived or I don't care about getting back on, you know, being the most famous songwriter or whatever. I just, I have a lot of interests and in things that I do. And writing the book was one of them. Okay, if someone calls you up to write a song, talking about the economics, when we had physical media on an album, a stiff made as much money, or an album track made as much money as the hit. Whereas in streaming, the hit is streamed many multiple times more. If I called you up and say, write a song on my album, would you first say, are we writing the single? And if we're not writing the single, I'm not interested? I, I've heard that from other songwriters. Um, I don't know if I'd be that sort of blatant about that. That just seems like, well, you know, you still got to write for the pleasure and the art of it. But um, I would hope that I would write, just have the ability to write a song that would just obviously they'd have to make it a single because it'd be that good. You know, I try not to write bad songs anymore, honestly. I, you know, um, like I said before, it's not about the quantity as much as the quality um, so I, I, I mean, how do you say to someone, I have to write the first single or I'm not doing that? It's like, well, write the song first and we'll tell you if it's good enough. And then, you know, I mean, how do you sort of say that? I'm so famous as a writer. My song has to be, I mean, that's pretty nervy, you know? Um, it, and maybe, maybe is, some writers say that. It is nervy, but there's only uh, 24 hours in a day and other people say, well, I'd rather write a Broadway musical or I'd rather do this or rather do that. I don't want to take the time because it might be economically unfruitful in addition to eating up some well, of my time. I have the perfect answer for that, actually. If the way I feel now is I like to write on my own. If I'm going to write with someone else, it has to be one of two things for me to do it now because I don't need to write anymore. I, you know, I've cashed out. I'm fine, whatever. Um and that doesn't mean I don't keep writing, but, you know, it's like for my pleasure is different than if I'm going to get it out there and sell it and all that. It either it either has to be a new artist that I think is so talented that I believe in them and I'll write with them. Or I want to write with, like, the big artists. 
You know, I, I'm good enough. And if it, if I can't do that, I don't I don't want to write with like, you know, some label going to send over one of like how many, uh, although they don't even really sign that many bands anymore. I want to, I have a list of people that I want to work with right now that I haven't worked with. And I know I could write a hit song with them. And I think they would benefit from my style of writing. Um, do you want to know who some of them are? Sure, lay it on us. <laughs> okay, I would love to work with Lady Gaga. I was really a fan, like, of her early artsy stuff, you know? And, like, even when she was doing Bad Romance. I think lately she's doing, like, a lot of ballads and all that. And she's sort of, you know, she's become so conservative. Like, whether it's working with Tony, who I love Tony Bennett, um, or whatever. She's a chameleon. But I like the artsy side of her. And I would love to write with her. I think we'd write some killer songs together. So she's one. I would love to work with Trent Reznor. I think he's just so talented. I mean, he's done everything from Nine Inch Nails to doing film scoring. And, you know, I love the record he did with Halsey. Um, just for the sheer pleasure of working with him, I would love to work with him. I'd love to work with some of the more commercial artists like Kelly Clarkson and Adele. You know, I feel as a woman, I have a lot in common with them. We're all like women raising kids on our own. And we're all like, you know, when the doors are closed, we're, we're, we can be just as trashy and funny. And, you know, um, I think they, as people, we would get along. And, and because if we got along as people and we're good at what we do, we would write ahead. That's the soup that you want to make. And that's what was so great with heart, you know? And we talked, I, you know, that's one of my favorite chapters in the book, The 30 Toes. It's like, you have a connection, and then with that connection and that, that's what they talk about chemistry, you know, like when, you know, people meet and, oh, we have chemistry. It's the same exact thing as a writer. And I think, I know, I mean, like I said, there's still to this day at my age that I'm vulnerable about, but songwriting is not one of them. It's like, put me in the room with them, and I'll hit it out of the park. But those opportunities aren't, you'd think I'm in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, you know, um, I know there are other writers out there that can just pick up the phone and say, you know, I have blah, blah, blah. It's not that easy as you would think, you know, and, and, and I, even if I go to primary way or something, just to make it happen to that. I'm, I'm having to do now what I had to do when I was young and I was hungry. I am having to come up with different ways to reach out to an artist and get their attention. And that is also another reason, which was your very first question. Why now? Why did you write this book? Because I want to get the attentions of some of those people, hopefully, in some way, so I can write with them. So, your kids are grown. What's your day-to-day -day life like now? And how often do you sit down to write songs? Well, you know, the last couple of years, it was totally devoted to writing this book. Um, and as I said, I wrote about 100 pages more than my editor just said. You kept trimming it down and trimming it down. And what I like about that, some reader wrote some review and he said, Holly Knight's book is just like her, her songs, all killer and no filler. I thought that was, he, they're right. You know, it's like, I don't know how many books I've read that are, you know, memoirs that it's like, they start out with a bang, but then they sort of settle into this sort of like normalcy of this one got to this place on the hits and blah, blah, blah and it gets really boring. It's like, I tried to write that book. So it was like, boom, boom. Boom, boom, done, you know? Um, 
So anyway, in, in answer to your question, uh, that took up a lot of my time. But a typical day, I, I got a dog during the pandemic. I know you're not a dog person, but this one is sort of this close to a wolf. And I have this one thing in my book that says, it's at the very beginning, and it has a sword, and it says, you've seen it. It says, you can't throw me to the wolves. They come when I call. So I have this relationship with this this dog that takes up a lot of time. And she, like two hours a day, I have to go hiking or walking with her because if I don't, she'll, she's a husky, she'll destroy my house. So I get I bike ride a lot. I go. I live in the Palisades, so I go down to the beach and I'll ride my bike early in the morning. So that's one of my rituals, you know. And then I'll come home and I'll answer my emails. And I have a lot of different projects on the table right now that are offshoots of what's coming out of the book. So I'm kind of focusing on that. Um, but I woke up the other day and I thought, you know what? It's time to get back to songwriting. Not because I need to, but just because I miss it. You know, I miss, I miss that feeling I get when I tap into that ether and stuff. And um, so I think that I'm going to focus on that a lot. I, I love to travel. I'm really into photography. I have a photography website and I do fine art photography and I, take it pretty seriously and you know as long as it's creative as long as I can do things and it's creative like always creating and doing things I'm happy you know um so that's about it I mean I'm getting older and and just doing normal things like everybody else the, the little things that you love to do okay as one gets older let's put it this way the scene of the 80s is gone okay in the internet era you can stay home and have connection, whereas you used to have to go out. This is ultimately asking you, how social are you today? Part of it is age, part of it is the scene being changed. Are you more of a homebody in addition, or writing is a relatively private thing? I'm a little bit of both, you know, I, but I am very much a homebody. I, you know, I think because I left home so young, and I always lived in... You know, I'd live in one place for five years, then move on. This place I've lived in for 25 years. And, you know, over time, I've just, like, every year I remodel another room, make it more and more mine. And um, during the pandemic, I really, I did that a lot. So everybody that comes to my house is like, yeah, well, why would you leave? You've got your recording. I have an incredible recording studio. I have an incredible kitchen. I have incredible hikes everywhere. I can go swimming in, in my pool. I've got... So I do, because of that, I tend to, uh, you know, get a little antisocial, but then then I really love to go out too and, and, and be social, but I can only do it for so long. Like where, when I was younger, I would do it every night and I would be out till five or six in the morning and then go to the, have breakfast before I'd go home. Now it's like, by the time it gets to be about like 11 or something, I'm like wiped out, you know? Um, but I wake up early. I wake up like at six in the morning, not because I want to, but because my body just is making me, you know. So um, in that way, um, I'm pretty normal. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, you can't live a life of like insaneness forever. It just isn't, your body can't take it, you know. But I'd say I'm, I'm pretty normal. Okay, so we're doing this podcast Actually, at my incentive, I asked you, but getting the word out is almost impossible these days. And as sophisticated as the music business is and all the complaints we have that, the book business is even more antique. So how have you gotten the word out and has it worked? 
um, I hired a PR person, and unfortunately, I've gotten more podcasts casts than you can imagine. But they're not—I wouldn't say they're the caliber of this one. And this is a this is a big a big one for me. You know, um, what I really wanted to do was I wanted them to get me in things like Rolling Stone with an excerpt or something. And it's like, oh my god, it's so it's so hard. It's just it's unbelievable. So. You know, brick by brick, I've been doing these podcasts, and the good thing is that um, in on Amazon, it was listed as number one for hot new releases in, in music, so that's good. Um, the same thing with Audible, it was number one for hot new releases, but whether that sells books or not, I don't know. I mean, you, you, I, could, I could pick your brain about that because it's not easy. I mean, unless you're a huge household name or your Prince Harry or something, or Pamela Anderson, trying to, you know, it, it's a slow process trying to get your book out there and, and, and doing the right pieces. I mean, I'm hoping to get some more re reviews on the book. I've got a lot of reviews, but they're readers, which is actually the, the most important. But, you know, I, I'm still working on that. I'm hoping that uh, I think the next big surge for books, uh, book sales is Mother's Day. And I think that would be... Um, I, hopefully, you know, I, I'll get more PR and, and things. I mean, all you can do is th what you can do. I've done the job. I'm doing uh, social media, which I hate, but I'm doing a lot of it, and I'm paying someone to do right. So, you know, I've got Instagram, and I've got Twitter, and, you know, the numbers are starting to grow. Um, but that doesn't mean – look, it's like anybody. They go on social media, and they'll hit like. But to actually follow you – that's a big commitment, and I'm the same way. Like I, I can say I like something that someone said, but to follow them, that means now every day their streams are going to be taking up my time and invading my life. So do I commit to that or not? Um, so it, it, it's, I think it's just tough out there for everybody, and you just hope. It's like the thing with the best. You hope you hit the juggernaut of, of some nerve. Am I saying that right, juggernaut? Jug, you said a little J-O, but I wouldn't have stopped you if you hadn't stopped yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it was funny when I did the Audible book, and I got to a part where I had written, albeit, I said, I'll bite. And the, the, the producer was, like, cracking up. I said, I, how do you pronounce it? Just tell me, please. I knew that. You know, so I tend to do that. But, um, you know, just hoping that something happens, one thing, where it just enough attention happens that people go out and buy it because I think the people that are going out and buying it are loving it, you know, really, really lo loving it. I've gotten so many great, like, you know, fan letters and, and, and responses on it, but I, I don't want it to just sit there. Like I want it to be big, you know? Um, I have like one project that possibly might happen. That's going to come as an offshoot of this, which would be great I, that I can't really talk about, but that might be the thing that then turns around and sells the book. Do you have any suggestions? Let's put it this way. We can talk off mic about all this stuff, but there is no silver bullet. And selling a yeah. book is even harder than selling a record. And selling a record mm. is very difficult at this point in time. The only thing I know about publishing is it's you. You have to do everything. Whereas, you know, in some of these other businesses, the third parties can get action, but it's very old school. We can get an initial push and then it's all in your hands. Anyway, Holly, I want to thank you 
so much for taking the time and talking with my audience. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited when you invited me. I think you're badass. I, I really love reading your, your your emails that you send out and, and your blogs. And so many I've read them and gone, yes. You know, there's been a few where I went, no, no. And then <laughs> I, I would went, expect right, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, because we're both, you know, we're both passionate and smart. So, um, but no, I'm, I'm a fan. And thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Absolutely. Till next time, it's Bob Left Six. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.